Good morning, everybody. Um, it's good to be with you um, here in person and um, online. Uh, there, is, um, there is plenty of people still online, and um, we're glad you're able to join us. Um, yeah, I'm going to just dive right in. I, I've been really excited the last few months. Um, I've found a couple resources that have just kind of excited me, kind of um, just brought me some, some new life and energy as I'm spending time in the Word. Uh, some of you ask me, what, what am I reading? What am I listening to? Um, and here's two resources that I think would really be a benefit and an encouragement to you. Um, <clears throat> one is called How Not to Read the Bible, written by Dan Kimball. Um, How Not to Read the Bible. Um, Dan Kimball is a theologian, but also practical. Like, I, he thinks heady, but he also brings it down to a, a, a really practical how-to and what does it look like. So How Not to Read the Bible. And then um, there's the Bible Project podcast, How to Read the Bible Paradigm. And so coupled together, Tim, Tim Mackey is a local theologian and does the same thing as Dan Kimball, um, and they've created the Bible Project and a podcast and a bunch of learning things, tools lately. So uh, this last week I was on Twitter, and um, Dan Kimball tweeted out this. Um, he wrote, fun to be on the Bible Project podcast talking about the importance of not just saying, read the Bible, but showing how to do it and explaining what the Bible is and isn't to avoid much confusion. This ties into today's message. I'm going to tell you to read your Bibles today, right? But I don't have the time to tell you how to read your Bible. I don't have the time to tell you how not to read your Bible. But if you couple this wisdom and the, the learning that they've done with this message of read your Bibles, um, my hope today is as we walk away, um, we'll have that renewed hope when we open the Word. So that's my resources for you today. Um, we're in a series called Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah, we've gotten to a place where they have finished building the wall, right? They've, they took 52 days to construct these massive walls around the city, and they've created a city that's protected. And so today what we want to go through is what happens next. What happens after this wall is completed and the people are inside the walls? So we're going to cover two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8. Um, so let's look at chapter 7 first, and I'm just going to read 1 through 5. <clears throat> so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. If you have your phones, you can go that or look on the screen. Okay. So Nehemiah 7, 1 through 5. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful, God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. 
appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it few. And now houses, uh, and, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then by God, my God, put in my heart to assemble the nobles and officials and people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found it written a long list of names I can't pronounce. <laughs> the, the next few verses, 6 through 72, are just a bunch of names. The genealogy of the people, basically a bunch of names we can't pronounce, right? Um, so for the next 6 through 72 verses, it's basically a census. A census of all the people that have come back. Come back into the city. <clears throat> So chapter 7 tells us that Nehemiah leads his people to complete the wall, but still had, had to live with some caution, so he needed to appoint guards. He needed to protect the city. But apparently, as they were building the walls, they hadn't started building their houses. They didn't rebuild their houses. They took 52 days to construct this massive wall to protect the city, and now it's time to actually build their homes and settle into towns, and that's what's happening. They're waiting for other uh, Jewish people to come back to the city, right? So then at the end of chapter 7, it says this, 73, uh, verse 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns, and when they, and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. That leaves us to go to chapter 8. And then as they are in their towns, what's next? Chapter 8, 1 through 8. <clears throat> and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that, uh, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Israel, the priest, brought the law before uh, Isaiah, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read <clears throat> from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on wooden, a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And, and beside him stood Matiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hakiah, and Masua on the right hand. And Padiah, Mashiel, Malak, Hashem, Hashabad, Zechariah, and Mashulam on the left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
Also, Jeshua, Beni, Sherba, Jamin, Akum, Shabith, Hodia, Messiah, Kalati, Azukrah, Josabad, Hanan, Palah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Man, I love this picture that is being painted here. The beginning of chapter 8, they, the people have been in their towns. The walls have been built. They're protected, but they feel there's a, something missing, right? They're missing something. And they go and they gather together, all of them gather, and they say, we need God. We need to hear the word of God. So they go to Ezra, and they say, bring out the book, bring out the law, bring out the scrolls. So Ezra stands on a wooden platform in front of them, both men and women. Now normally, this is, this is just a place where they would read for the men. But Nehemiah makes it clear in this chapter that both men and women were there. There's the phrase that he says a couple times, so all could understand. Both men, women, and children, everyone. It's that important that they all hear the word of God. In verse 5, when Ezra opens the book, they all stand in reverence, ready to hear God speak. Then he blessed the Lord. Now, I want to make it clear. He doesn't sit there and bless the scrolls. He doesn't bless the, the word of God. He blesses God, the great one. He's not worshiping the scrolls and the word. He's worshiping God, the great one. I can imagine at this time they're saying that the, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they all said, Amen, Amen. Right? They respond and they say, Amen, Amen. This word Amen meaning faithful, reliable. Let it be. They're worshiping God, saying, Amen, Amen. And their hands raise up a sign of surrender and submission to their God. Most vulnerable place you can be with your hands up, saying, I surrender to the great God. And then they proceed to bow down and get low, as low as they can, on the ground, all of them prostrate, why? Because that's what you do for the king. That's what you do for the great king. You get low, lower than they can go. Such a beautiful vision of worship. Sometimes I, I want to be in spaces where there's a little bit more charismatic worship. You know what I mean? where you can enter into a space and you worship using your mouth, 
using your hands, using your full body, without worry of looking, un, you know, un, just worshiping uninhibited, right? To be able to go, amen, amen, raising your hands, bowing down, doing whatever it is to show your adoration to the great God. Full expression, full voice. So it says they continue, they bow down. While Ezra reads from the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And as Ezra read through, through it, it took about half a day or more. It says that list of men that we read off and the Levites. They move through the crowd and they help them discern and understand what is being said. It's like they're the Dan Kimballs and the, the Tim Mackeys of our day walking through and go, do you understand? Do you get it? This is what they're saying. This is what God's doing. Chapter 8, 9 through 12, it says that Nehemiah was the governor and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. I'm going to repeat that. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to spend, send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were being declared to them. Friends, listening to God's word, reading God's word, it's, it's not just an auditory or visual function. It's not just an auditory function that's happening when they hear the word of God. It involves this painful process when we examine and open our hearts and are attentive to the word. It's, it's a painful process that opens our lives to God's truth and his judgment. Reading the word exposes us to God's truth and his judgment. And many times the word of God will make us feel guilt. It will make us feel shame. It will make us feel remorse to the point where we find ourselves weeping. We find ourselves mourning. We find ourselves spiraling guilt-ridden. It doesn't feel good. And sometimes because of that, we shy away from the Bible. This thing feels more like a hammer than a soothing balm. This thing feels like it's going to beat you down and beat the sin out of you. 
we go to the Bible with this negative expectation. Very little expectation sometimes that this thing will bring healing and joy. So as the Jewish people were listening to the law, they feel this weight. They, feel, they begin to mourn and they start weeping. But Ezra and the priests and the scribes and the Levites, they say, don't weep. Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. Send portions to those who have nothing that they can prepare. For this day is holy to our Lord. And don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy here is, is, isn't equivalent to happiness. It's not, it's not, you'll be happy, go, go, go on, go and be happy. It's the joy that they speak of. The joy of the Lord is this deep sense of peace and that all is well with my soul. The joy of the Lord is about this deep sense of peace, knowing that all is well with your soul. The reading of the Torah isn't just laws that people were following. It was an account of their history. It was stories of God's goodness, faithfulness, prophecies of a Savior, a Messiah, the Anointed One, who was going to come and save them, who was going to come and make all things right. So stop crying and weeping about your sin, because there is a Savior coming. There is a Savior coming. Messiah is coming. Amen and amen. So they get up. They wipe their faces. And they go and eat fatty meat. They have a barbecue. And they drink sweet wine. They give themselves a gout attack. Why? Why? Because great hope, great hope is in our brokenness. Great hope is coming even though we don't feel like we are enough, even though we don't feel like we measure up, even if we feel like we're too much for God and, not, and over the top and that God can't love us. The great hope, the joy of the Lord is that we have a Savior who is coming for us, he has come. So good, so good. And then, so they go and they share these portions of fatty meat and wine with those who don't have. And they enjoy a meal. They enjoy and indulge in the goodness of God. But it says they continue in verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the father's house of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they were in the seventh month, right? And that they should proclaim it was proclaim it and publish it into their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and, and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to these booths as it is written. 
So the people went out, and they brought them, and made booths for themselves, each on, its, on his roof, and in their courts, and in their court, courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for the days of, uh, for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, that day the people you uh, sorry none uh, and that day the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing and the day and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the boot the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was solemn assembly according to the rule. What we see here, guys, is, is that the people continued to read the law. And then they discovered that they had, had not been practicing this command that, that the Lord gave Moses years ago since since Joshua, the son of Nun, they hadn't been practicing this law called the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths is this. It was a reminder of, to Israel what God had done in the desert. As they were going to find the promised land, God gave them shelter. He gave them food. He took care of them. He was faithful and steadfast. And the Feast of Booths were to remind them of this. Build these shelters of palm and myrtle and these leafy branches to remind yourself God is good and faithful. They hadn't done it since Joshua, the son of Nun. And they felt like they, they needed to follow the law. So in their love, for God, they recognized who they were, the children of God, and the people of God, and they wanted to obey the law. I want to make sure you hear the difference here. God's love for Israel gave them their identity as children of God. So as children of God, they went out and lived in obedience. There's a triangle I use to, to, to remind me of this. And so we're going to pop it up. See, you see the arrow from God going down to inform us of our identity. We are the children of God. God loves us. He tells us who we are. And because of who we are as children of God, we go out in obedience and serve and do and, and live out in obedience. But so many times we have it backwards, right? We have been raised and we think it, it looks like this. This triangle starts with obedience, and it goes backwards. We obey, and we act like Christians and try and live these faithful lives of obedience so that God will love us, so that God will recognize us, so that we're good enough. And we work ourselves to death trying to do it that way. We work ourselves to death trying to be like the people God calls us to be, even though he's already called us those things. So we, this is a works-based idea. This is a works-based faith. But when we get it right and we realize that God loves us and he calls us his children, and we live in that love and understanding, then we can move in obedience. 
Maybe that's why coming to sing and to worship God or opening our Bibles or serving others seems kind of tedious. Seems like it's work. Because we're trying to work our way to be good Christians. So that God will love us, so that we'll be accepted, so that we're doing what God wants us to do. So many times we do it because we were told that's what we should do. That's what we should do. And we do it begrudgingly. But friends, we don't need to pursue God like that. We don't need to prove ourselves. God has pursued us. God, from the very beginning, has pursued, pursued humanity from the garden when he chased after Adam and Eve to Abraham when he came in a bush on fire to Jacob at the well through Jesus who left his place in heaven to come down to earth to be our Savior, to invite us into the family of God. God loves you. He sent Jesus to invite you into this family. You have an opportunity to join his family by saying, I believe you, Jesus. I want to be faithful and follow you, Jesus. I want to be a part of your family. And when you do that, and you become a part of his family. You experience love. You experience grace. You experience compassion. And it moves you to obedience. You want to do his will. So friends, when we sing songs and we look at God the Father and Jesus the Son and Holy Spirit, our helper, when we worship the triune God, we say amen and amen. He is faithful. He is reliable. We lift our hands and surrender, and we bow down to the King of Kings. It should change our mindset. It should change our attitude. When we come to the Word of God, we don't look at this book as a hammer or a bitter, swill to po uh, a bitter pill to swallow. We've been given the word of God as a library of, and of books and letters that describe the mystery of the cosmos, that gives us insight to the love of God. It gives us direction and instruction to live lives with wisdom. It's a message of mercy, a message of justice, compassion, hope, love, and the abundant life. Why wouldn't you want to read this? Why wouldn't you call out, open the word and read it to us? Amen and amen. You know, there's a practice in the Hebrew schools um, for children that, that, that begin to learn to read the Torah. And there's, um, when kids learn to read the Torah, right, the first books of the Bible and, and, and the, the education system, they're given candy or honey on their lips to taste before they begin. And what that does, it, it, it tells them, this is good, this is sweet. They associate it with 
goodness and sweetness. And sometimes we forget that. For us adults, maybe we need to eat a steak and have some wine and open the word to remind us. Amen? All right. It's so good. It's so good. But we forget. So what I did this week, as you leave, I'm going to give you Psalms 19, 7 through 11 on this little bookmark. And on the back of it is taped a honey stick. And we would do it together here, but we're going to stay masked. And, and I apologize for those online. I'm sure you can find some candy in your home while you read this. But I'm going to read for us Psalms 19, 7 through 11. And if you would just listen and hear these words. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the dripping of honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Psalms 19, 7 through 11. And that's just a snippet of Psalms 19. So good. Missio, this is my prayer for you as we move into this next season that we look more like the people of Israel in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. You see, they have walls that have been built to protect them and meet their physical needs, but they realize what good is the city without God? What good is the city if we don't have God and his word? What good is this beautiful building that we have to invest in Missio. What good is this building if there is God, if there is no God here? If we don't experience God in this place? If we don't know the word of God in this place? What good is it? I pray that we want to be attentive to his word and let our heart, soul, and mind be penetrated. And yes, that may lead to weeping and mourning, but it also will lead to the hope of the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And when we hear God and experience God and his love and his grace, we will know we are his children, adopted into his family through the person of Jesus. And therefore, we will live in obedience. This week, your Nehemiah challenge is this. This week, set aside time to read the Bible, 
and be present with Jesus. Before you read that passage, put something sweet in your mouth like honey or candy. Remind yourself that God's word is like honey on your lips. And then pray that you would be attentive while you read and spend time in his word. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be like the people in Nehemiah 8. Just hungering, thirsting, desiring to hear from you, to be in your presence, knowing that the city is nothing without you. We see the same thing. So God, as we go out this week, would we be people of your word, people of obedience, people that know who they are, that they are the beloved children of God through the work of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.